I'm Taryn Ward. I'm Stephen Jones. And this is Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines. We're taking a closer look at the core issues around social media, including the existing social media landscape, to better understand the role social media plays in our everyday lives and society. Last time, we started our look at TikTok and its powerful algorithm and discussed some of the concerns regulators have expressed about the platform more broadly. Today, we'll discuss why these concerns and other signals from regulators mean it's likely that we'll see some changes over the next 12 months. The groundwork has already largely been laid with bans on government devices and increasing conversations about the dangers of TikTok. And as we dive headfirst into another election cycle in the United States, mis- and disinformation is likely to play a central role, both in terms of how this election plays out and what regulators are focused on. Yeah, I mean, that's all true. And, you know, mis- and disinformation is continuing to play an increasing role in elections and election cycles, whether it's the US election or Brexit referendum. And one has to assume the next UK election, which is coming up too, remember? I think I read somewhere that there are something like 50 elections coming up in the next year. Um, and social media is going to play a role in um, in determining though the outcome of those. And we know social media platforms have had negative effects, shall we say, in terms of the way that they've allowed mis- and disinformation to spread and allowed society be, to be polarized. TikTok is definitely um, going to play a role, which it didn't in the last set of election cycles. And as we mentioned last time, people can't determine very well what is an advert on TikTok and what's just entertainment. And that makes it difficult for us to turn on our skepticism and think critically about what we're being told. So I I think it's unlikely that um, whether it's before or, um, you know, subsequent to the next election that, that TikTok is going to escape some kind of action from regulators, um, you know, in the long term. I just, I just can't see that. What do you think, Taryn? I agree, and I think in part this is because concerns about TikTok are one of the only things U.S. regulators on both sides of the aisle agree on. And this isn't just true for the U.S. either, although it's easy to focus on them because they're sort of the most. Um, out there, let's say, <laughs> you know, it's it's easy yeah. to talk about them and easy to point our fingers. But actually, I think the same thing is true, as, as you well said, in a lot of other governments that have elections coming up relatively soon. But, you know, thinking about the U.S. in particular, there are some easy potential wins here and opportunities for one-upmanship, which we see in particular not not exclusively, but particularly in the U.S., you know, you have this sort of, we care more about America's youth. No, we do. We love your children more. No, we do. We want to protect your children. No, we do. And this goes on and on. And we see this play out in a, in a way in the U.S. that does seem to be unique. And we're sort of really set up to have this argument about TikTok for the first time. And, you know, we have that going on on the one hand. At the same time, relations have continued to deteriorate with China. And that's that's never great for anyone who invests in one country and operates in the other. And, you know, there are these expectations, I think, on both sides, both people in China and in the West, that things are, are going badly and are likely to continue to go badly for, you know, we tend to think of things in five to 10 year cycles. So, so certainly that long. And that is the case regardless of the next election in the United States, in, you know, in the UK and, and other places. 
concerns about security, privacy, and control are very likely to increase. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think there are a number of flashpoints p- potentially existing between you know Western governments and Southeast Asian governments and the Chinese government. Let's be honest; it's not just us. You know, there's the increasing militarization of the South China Sea. There's increasingly hostile rhetoric about uh, Taiwan being part of you know mainland China. There's increasing influence in the sub-Saharan African regimes and the explicit and implicit support for Russia in its um, war in Ukraine. All of these things, I think, have combined to make uh, China viewed as, as more of a problem than it has been probably for any time since Nixon visited a very long time ago. The fact that... Um, President Xi has sort of solidified his uh, grip on the party and, um, you know, has extended his, you know, tenure as as leader, possibly uh, until his demise, makes the the West even more nervous. Even though the leaders weren't elected by the populace, there was an expectation there would be a turnover and that expectation's gone. And so I think it's reasonable for people in the governments uh, in other countries to think that there's there's not going to be a change of direction. And in fact, there's likely to be a doubling down or all of those issues, which are absolutely counter to the best interests of countries in South uh, East Asia and and the West. And I think the fact that China seems to be having economic difficulties now related to their real estate market and so on probably exacerbates the concern of Western governments because when a government is under pressure at home, it often... Uh, becomes more belligerent internationally because it, it keeps the populace on on board with their action, right? So there are very good reasons to be concerned, and there's a lot of reasons to believe that the Chinese government would like to have influence in British, European, and uh, American elections over the next election cycle. Yes, I, I think that's all fair, and. You know, there's there's always risk in business and in international business. There's there are unique risks. So anytime you have you know a, a company based in one country and operating in another, or you know investors from one country, and it's it's all complicated. And and everyone knows, every grown up knows that there's a risk that relations between two countries deteriorate. There are some countries where relations have a longer, stronger groundwork, and so the risk is arguably lower. But but there's always this risk and the financial consequences that follow. And I think that's something that you know a lot of people are set up to realize in a new way because we've had this extended period where everybody's really tried to get along and largely has. But there are signals now that that some of that is changing. And when we talk about what's happening in Ukraine, that's certainly a good example of this. This is in spite of the fact that Thomas Friedman wrote in 2005 this book, The World is Flat. Steve, did you ever read or come across that book? I'm afraid to say I didn't, Taryn. Well, I wouldn't be afraid of that. I think in some ways, you know, you're probably better off. But for, for most of us who were you know, sort of in school or just out of school around that time, it was 
it was an important book and, and they used to teach it actually in economic classes in the US. Um, but it also became a, a, just a big part of popular culture. And the idea here was that there were all these various forces working to flatten the earth. I'm not talking about like the flat earth, literally, but this idea that the playing field of global competitiveness was being leveled. That's a that's a whole conversation for another day. But but here, this idea was that we were becoming more and more connected. Technology was increasing. We were headed towards this utopia of exchange and it was really optimistic and hopeful. And it's been fairly criticized on a lot of different fronts as as a lot of things, exaggerated, overdone, oversimplified, all, all these things I think are fair. But the important bit is that this viewpoint became a, a very important part of the collective understanding about how things, not only how things were working, but how the direction things were going in. And I think a lot of people really wanted to believe this, especially after 9-11. There was this, this sense that, yes, in some places in the world, things are, things are going badly, but you know, if they could just get a McDonald's, if we could just get them sort of started, things would be better and we could all get along. Yeah. Um, I like, I like that idea that, you know, McDonald's is a harbinger of peace, um, rather than of somewhat adequate burgers. I think, you know, one of the things that I, I found living and working in different countries, including China briefly back in 2008, which now is an increasingly long time ago, I, I have to admit, and things have changed a lot in that time, but then also in the Middle East and Africa and, and, um, in the more recent past, it's really fascinating how similar people are. You know what they care about: their kids, their spouse, having a somewhere to live which is safe and secure, having the opportunity to eat nice things and hang out with their friends. These things unite people, and very often, laughing about the same things. That sense sure. of humor is is really interesting. But it, the reality is, that in some countries, you have to be really careful about how you express that because. You know, despite the fact that in the West we sometimes complain about limits on our free speech, there are countries where it, you know you can get into a great deal of trouble for laughing about some things or criticizing those things, and that's I think is the fundamental difference between us and you know places like Saudi Arabia and China and Russia. If we were embroiled in a war, we would be free to protest it. We know that from Vietnam and from the, the last series of wars in Afghanistan and um, the Gulf, there were massive protests going on for the whole period. If you try and protest this in Russia, you're liable to go to jail or be fined or both, right? So that, that fundamental difference is there. And I think that, that that's not necessarily what the populace want as it, at the individual level. And we said this in the beginning, you know, there's a difference between the Chinese government and the Chinese people. But the goals of the Chinese government are um, are not aligned with what the future that we would like to see. And there are massive limits on what the Chinese people can do about that. Whereas, you know, whether you criticize our elections or not, we do have them and we have an opportunity to change governments. And I think, you know, Friedman's idea that this is trade is the great leveler is just a little naive. And the experience of the last couple of years has sort of shown us that actually it's a massive strategic problem because when COVID hit and supply chains were disrupted, 
you know, that resulted in increases in prices, difficulty in getting hold of necessities or things that we think of as necessities, whether that includes chips for it, PlayStations or not, I'm not sure. But that resulted in inflationary pressure, which has resulted in increases in uh, interest rates, recession or recession-like um, economic circumstances, cost of living crisis, which is undeniable. You know, since then, we've seen efforts by the US and, and the EU um, to try and repatriate some of that production capacity to, to, to limit that strategic problem, right? Even energy, there's efforts in the US to increase domestic energy production to reduce reliance on the Middle East. So whilst people are interested in the same things, governments are not, and that's the I think the the fly in that particular ointment. What what do you think? I mean, I I never read the book, as I said, and I was certainly not forced to study it. Thank God. But that's sort of my my view on this. I think what you said about people fundamentally wanting and caring about the same things is really important. I think that may have been the kernel of truth, or one of the kernels of truth, if I'm feeling a little more generous, in this book that allowed people to think to take the next step and and the leap, which wasn't necessarily justified. And, you know, this idea that we all want to laugh, we all want to be safe, we all want to, you know, we want some of these same these same things is is really powerful. But it doesn't mean that we're all rational actors primarily motivated by economics. And I think that's the problem with Friedman's golden arches theory and later on his Dell theory. So the golden arches theory in my McDonald's comment wasn't purely a throwaway. So originally, you know, asserted by him in 1999, he he claimed that, and, and this was true at the time, by the way, no two countries that both had a McDonald's had fought a war against each other since each had its McDonald's. So, you know, if two countries both had an operational McDonald's, they they weren't going to go to war. And it was sort of that next step that was was implied, right? As long as you have two countries that have reached a level of economic development such that they could support a McDonald's, they wouldn't be interested in fighting wars. Friedman later said this was tongue-in-cheek, but that was only after, of course, NATO bombed Yugoslavia and protesters in Belgrade demolished a McDonald's, I think by hand. The footage of that was, was really remarkable. So Friedman later amended this theory to be the Dell theory, and this was more about supply chains. So the idea was that if two countries are both part of the same major global supply chain, like Dell's, they wouldn't go to war. They just wouldn't. They wouldn't want to risk it. They'd be focused on economic development, other things. Um, slightly more complicated and nuanced argument, but not very much. And of course, this is also proven untrue, but. Really, because these books were so widely consumed and and people believed it, even though there was criticism that was credible, a, a lot of this just became sort of assumed. This became a, a big part of people's understandings about how international economics worked. Um, of course, we know, based on even a cursory glance at historical conflicts or a present situation, that People are not purely rational actors, and they're certainly not purely rational actors that are solely or primarily motivated by economics. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is absolutely true. Um, I saw um, an article, I think it was in the New York Times, which is, you know, not a reactionary paper, I think it's fair to say, um, but written by an economist who 
basically said in one, one part of this, I'm not sure why anybody believes economists because most of the time they're wrong. And from the rest, from the point of view, rest of rest of science, it's a little bit like um, the difference between astronomy and astrology. You know, the economists are are trying to predict the future <laughs> behavior based on things which they just don't understand. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, and it's it, it, by its very nature, it's reductionist, right? It's trying to take a very complex system and and, and reduce it. And the fact the fact that people don't appear to make rational decisions, I think is really important. You know, I spent a lot of time making scientific presentations, as you know, and then trying to teach people to make better scientific presentations to to try and persuade people, you know, to get the, the, them to change their behavior. That behavior that would make them healthier and happier and take care of their families, you know. And what I always said to uh, students was that people don't really care about the data. Like, they, they want the data to be there. They don't want you to be making stuff up. But... The data isn't going to convince someone because they didn't make a logical decision to get into most positions that they 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 hold. They, it, these are emotional decisions. The all of that higher function thought that we have in our frontal cortex happens just a little bit slower than the emotional reactions, which happen in the sort of you know more evolutionary basic mem parts of the brain. And so it's always our emotions that we will follow. And then we can either retcon a logical reason for feeling that way, or we'll just say, oh, you know, that, I just don't believe that. That's not real. Um, it's the the curse of, of humankind. So, But you make decisions, you do make decisions based on what you feel is a reasonable basis. And, and, and maybe that's what economists do get wrong, is they expect people to only act in a way that is entirely rational and based on data and the beautiful equations that economists produce to, to, to sort of develop these, these models. But people aren't like that. And what's more, it's, it's most often not people who are deciding this, right? It is groups of people, which I often describe as, despite being individually intelligent, a group of people is about as smart as the square root of the IQ of the stupidest member. I mean, crowds are not known for making good decisions. And, and government is the ultimate crowd. And predicting what they think is important is extraordinarily difficult. So, you know, I, I think it was overly optimistic to the point of ridiculous naivety to assume that this was going to be the case. And it certainly hasn't worked out that way. Um, and the impact for TikTok is, in a geopolitical situation which seems to be deteriorating at the moment, they could well be a, a victim of this. What do, what do you think? You you know you you really studied this book and had students who were reading it for other people. Yes, I did. So when I was teaching, I I had students who would come in who were assigned this um, uh, reading, uh, not by me. Um, clearly, if you've been listening or paying attention at all, but. You know, they they wanted to talk about this book and think about this book, and I think I think there are are some real problems. Um, but even if we give it a really generous reading, and we're more generous to economists than I think either of us are inclined to be, looking at this, the average American really has little to gain economically by continuing to use TikTok. Dreams of becoming TikTok famous aside, um, which, you know, we can't discount. There's a very real, I think, you know, 
never when I was in school would people put their hands up and say, I want to be TikTok famous or I want to be an influencer. That is the reality now. That is a thing that you know children and teenagers aspire to be. But I think it's a little bit like becoming a famous athlete. Most people understand that the chances that that's going to happen for them are really slim. So what is the economic benefit or advantage to this? I, I think it's very little for for users who are the product. And I think as more platforms adapt some of these favorite features and make them their own or even make them better, there's little motivation and there's there's no loyalty. Um, you know, people feel like they've contributed enough, they've given enough. And, you know, we know that people aren't rational actors in this way, especially not purely for economics. The conversation we had earlier about what people really care about, they care about some very basic fundamental things, including their children. And, and this is, in most cases, in many cases, going to outweigh the economic arguments one way or the other. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, the, the, the U.S. Surgeon General came out earlier this year with an, a health advisory about social media, which, um, despite, I think, social media's attempts to downplay and say this was a massive overreaction, that that branch of the U.S. government is not reactionary. It takes a lot of time and effort to analyze data. And the fact that it says that there's reason for be, to be concerned and additional research is required is is well founded. In fact, all of the research that's available says that there are potential problems. And the, I think the, the only thing which is slowing this down is that um, parents also want their want to make raising their children as pain free as possible, and that these platforms do occupy a certain amount of their time, and they certainly enjoy them. You know yourself, kids will campaign to be allowed to have greater and greater access to screens and social media as they get get older and it's very difficult to say no. But if there's a real clear reason to, to take that away, um, particularly if the government is willing to do it for you so that you can't actually have to, you don't actually have to have that argument with your 13 year old, um, then, you know, that actually might be quite a positive outcome for many people. As you said, we're also, none of these platforms is run for our benefit at the moment. The business model ensures you were the product. Their actual customers are the advertisers for whom they are um, distributing adverts and selling the potential to manipulate you. And it is a definite attempt to manipulation. Let's not mess around. So why would we want to be manipulated by TikTok when we're already being manipulated by you know, so many other apps? And I think, as we said earlier, that TikTok is just one of the eight apps that young people and adults have on their phone and are using on a regular basis. It just happens to be the most absorbing and interesting and entertaining right now. Um, but it's not essential to life and um, is potentially harmful. So for all sorts of reasons. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's fair that regulators might be able to find and exploit the willingness of parents to protect their children to enable them to ban this. Yes. And it's not just parents worried about their specific children. Um, I think it's parents worried about children that they know and non-parents who are worried about young people they know and older generations worried about younger generations and mental health experts worried about everyone and sociologists worried about the fabric of society and everyone's a little bit worried about democracy. But really, we're all afraid of the Chinese. And I don't just mean the Chinese government. I think 
there are two parts to this. I think we are really afraid of some of the narratives around the Chinese people as a whole, that they're better at maths than we are mathematics, that they're smarter, that they're more driven, that they're going to outperform us, that we're all going to be speaking Chinese in the next 10 years. I mean, these are all things that I've heard at you know the school gates at you know our school which is fairly progressive in the last 2 weeks these are these are things that are yeah. that are out there and floating around and then you add in the chinese government and it's a whole a whole extra level and you know i think it's safe to say that there is a non-zero amount of this that is racism i don't know how much of it is but but it's definitely true that some of what's going on here is that. And I think that really muddies the water here. And it makes it hard to have these conversations in a in a thoughtful way, really. And we should be afraid. Hear me out. <laughs> we should be afraid because we don't understand and we haven't made the effort to understand. And even over the last 30 years, when we've had ample opportunity to understand Chinese people better, to understand the Chinese government better, we haven't really taken it. And so now we're in this position where, sort of like with Russia, we really lack a fundamental understanding of what motivates their decisions and what's going to happen next. Yeah, and I think all of that is absolutely true. You know, I, I enjoyed my time being in China as brief as it was and in, in the grand scheme of, you know, my life. But it, it would be false to say that I genuinely understand China and the Chinese. I understand perhaps a little bit better the people that I worked and, and lived with. And I certainly had appreciation for them um, as individuals and a group. We had things in common, you know, work or family. Um, but, you know, we really haven't made any effort. And I'm not sure that that's a one-way street. You know, um, I don't think that the that there, there's much appreciation for the West and particularly individuals in the West, in China either. And part of that, of course, is down to the, the, the Chinese government not wanting its people to understand the West. But, you know, we just don't understand one another. And that makes us suspicious. Europe doesn't really understand North America. North America doesn't really understand Europe, but to a significantly greater degree. And because we often look more or less the same, it's, you know, somehow less troubling. So, it's it's really difficult, but I, I think we shouldn't let our fear that this is racism, as founded as that some of that fear is, make us less willing to take decisive action, particularly if we're worried about security and um, the mental health and wellness of ourselves and our kids. I think you know we need a, a strong functioning group of individuals to make a strong functioning society, and we need a strong functional society uh, right now because threats whether they're natural or, you know, deliberate, seem to be coming at an increasing pace. Certainly if you talk to my kids, that they believe that to be true. And 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 we need a resilient society to to be able to counter that. And there's a as you said, non zero risk that TikTok will not um help us build a resilient society, will actually do the opposite. Yes. And and one of the risks here is that because we're focused on the Chinese element of this, rather than some of the things that make TikTok function, the algorithm, the social media components, is that 
we become so focused on TikTok's relationship to China and the Chinese government that we neglect the fundamental danger presented and the the really extraordinary power any of the big social media networks have over our lives and the worry and, and real concern that any bad actor, state or private, could use these platforms against the West, against a specific country, against a specific demographic, um, for for whatever purposes you can imagine. And, you know, this is the result of a real lack of accountability that these platforms have been have had up to this point. And and that's really the core problem that whether TikTok's relationship with the Chinese government is as it appears or not remains the same. So I have, you know, I have a difficult question for you. Let's remove the China element for a minute from the conversation about TikTok. I know it's hard to do that because it's, you know, it, it's woven through the, this conversation. But let's set that aside for a moment. If we do that, is TikTok the most dangerous social media platform in the West right now? We know it has stiff competition from Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and most recently Twitter. But is this the most dangerous social media platform if we take China out of the equation? It is a difficult question. And I think that you're absolutely right that the other platforms are all dangerous. They all have documented um, cases where they've caused harm politically or to individuals, um, health or mental health. But this particular risk I think that TikTok presents is that it is most popular and seems to target the youngest social media users in our societies that the algorithm is particularly effective and particularly addictive, um, that it commands a disproportionate amount of our young people's sort of attention and time. And as I mentioned before, people struggle to know whether content is an advert or um, you know just an entertaining video. And that isn't true for the other platforms. It's usually pretty obvious. My so yes, I think it is. My concern is, of course, that the other platforms have a long history of being manipulative and sneaky, and they will get better at replicating TikTok's features. If the Royal Society report that I referred to in the last episode and the the um, Surgeon General's report in the US have any impact, it should be that we take. The, um, those health effects and the addictive quality of these platforms much more seriously. If I were to give your children a drug, you know, by injection or orally, that was going to manipulate their dopamine levels and their serotonin levels and change their behavior and keep them up at night for hours past their bedtime, I would have had to, well, first of all, give get informed consent to even try it, but also have that drug regulated and approved by the FDA or the European Medicines Agency or whichever national body regulates drugs. And, you know, we know these social platforms affect those neurotransmitters and behavior consequently. And and there are absolutely no regulations or guidelines in place from any government anywhere in the world that would limit their ability to change that to make it more effective and more addictive. So, you know, 
that I think is the problem. It's just that TikTok is the most dangerous because right now it is absolutely the best at it. And the Chinese issue um, is just the, the cherry on the top and potentially dangerous, as you mentioned, because we focus on that rather than the actual potential problems of the the other problems of the of the network. Yeah, I think that's all fair. It will be interesting, not in a happy way, to watch how these other platforms integrate the most troubling parts of TikTok into into their platforms because we've already seen a lot of moves in that direction. And I would bet dollars to donuts, as we say sometimes in the US, that a lot of these platforms are well prepared to position themselves to step in and fill this gap if TikTok is banned in a more significant way or limited. And so we'll we'll see how that plays out. But I would say, particularly over the next 12 months, keep an eye out for regulations um, of, of various kinds and degrees uh, across the West, really. Next time, we'll continue to look at some of these new or newer social networking apps, but we'll focus specifically on super apps and discuss whether they're likely coming to a smartphone near you. In the meantime, we'll post a transcript of this episode with references on our website. You can find this and more information about us at thebrightapp.com. And if you'd like to take a deeper dive into how TikTok has changed social media as we know it, check out our previous episode on social media after TikTok. Until next time, I'm Stephen Jones. And I'm Taryn Ward. Thank you for joining us for Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines. Mm -hmm.